If you have a Bible, I want to encourage you, and remember my code word for if you have a Bible really should be stated, break out the Bible you brought, and uh, if you have it on your device, then go ahead and open that up and scroll to Galatians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be at today. I want to thank, as you do that, I want to thank a few people, a number of people actually that made the Harvest Carnival possible this past uh, Reformation Day, also known as Halloween. Did you, did you know that? No? Okay. And so I just want to thank you for serving. It was a great time. We literally had hundreds of volunteers. We had thousands of people here on campus. It was a, a great turnout. And I do want to say, if anyone's here and you're visiting our church because you came uh, on Halloween night, I just want to extend a very warm welcome to you. My name is Phil. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, just a really good opportunity for you to be here. And we're just so glad you're here. I also wanted to say thanks to all of you that came to the business meeting on Monday. It's a good time to be together, and I just am hoping that the Lord will take what we're able to share there and do much with it. And so just a really good time together. It's been a very eventful week. You know, also when we do communion, it's Family Worship Sunday, and I always like to try to tell a story or two about youth ministry or students and stuff like that. Middle school, high school students are here with their families, and I do want to say welcome to you all. I got a good story. When I was a middle school pastor, believe it or not, somebody hired me to be a middle school pastor. And then after two years, they moved me to something else. <laughs> um, but when I was a middle school pastor, I used to take kids to Hume Lake Christian Camp. And inevitably, every single year I ever brought kids to camp, there's always that kid. Just that kid. And middle school, high school students, don't be that kid. And here's what I mean by that kid. Parents give their kids spending money for the week. You know, go play paintball you know, go rent a boat, like go, you know, buy cotton candy, whatever you want to do. And inevitably, there's always the one kid. The one kid who gets off the bus, finds his cabin, throws everything on the cabin, takes out all the spending money his family gave him, and then runs right over to the general store and just spends it all within 30 minutes of arriving. And there's this one kid who did it every single year. And every single year, I'm like, where's he at? And it was like, general store. I'm like, oh my goodness. And so here we become bounding down the road into Meadow Ranch with arms full of cake frosting <laughs> and all kinds of sugary stuff. And he would come and I was like, did you, you bought all that? I didn't steal it. <laughs> How much money did you spend? All of it. How much is all of it? $105. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. I said, so you have a week away from your parents where you have this kind of freedom and that's what you choose to use your money on? Frosting? <laughs> that kid I always gave to my intern. I, you know, put him in the cabin with my intern because it was like, too much sugar, man. I can't handle it. <laughs> you be his counselor. You better man than I. Today we're gonna look at a theme that Paul introduces and it's the idea of freedom, which we talked about last week. But it's this idea of how you use your freedom. Because it's not just that you're free. It's, it's you're free for a purpose. And when students go to Hume Lake and they go to camps, they have incredible freedoms because parents aren't there to tell them what's what. And so they exercise their freedom in one of two ways, in really stupid ways or really, really like healthy ways. And the Apostle Paul is going to say, look, you've been set free from, by Christ. You, you've actually been, the freedom has been purchased for you. It's just you need to use your freedom wisely. You need to be responsible with your freedom. Don't waste it. And so that's where we're going to be at. Starting in verse 2, we're going to work through 
verse 15. And because uh, it's Communion Sunday, I have a little bit, little bit less time to preach. And so I'm going to take it section by section. And here's how the sections work. Verses 2 through 4 and verses 7 through 12 are one idea. Okay, 2 through 4, 7 through 12, one idea. It's the idea of standing against bondage, against slavery, standing firm. And then verses 5 through 6 is a transition. And that is where Paul is going to transition from the idea of you being in bondage. And he's transitioning to the second idea, which is found in verses 13 through 15. And in that section, he's going to talk about his freedom and how Christ has set us free and what we're supposed to do with our freedom. So first idea, bondage, don't do that, transition, and then we go to the third section. You tracking with me, church? Okay. So we're going to start in verses 2 through 4. Paul writes, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So I'm going to stop there, and we're going to look at this section first, and then we'll jump down to verses 7 through 12. Here's what Paul's doing in these three verses. Paul's giving a warning of the impossible obligations and consequences of coming under the law by accepting circumcision. Remember, circumcision was the sign that you're coming under the old covenant. So the first thing we see in verse 2, Paul says, I say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. This is Paul's warning. And what he's saying is, in effect, if you accept circumcision, you make God's grace null and void. Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you're going to accept circumcision, that means you are abandoning Jesus. So be warned. Big things are at stake. And then he goes on to kind of explain this warning by talking about the impossible obligations should you choose to abandon Christ and actually be circumcised and come underneath the law. Look at this in verse 3. says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you remember, Paul is reminding them of what he already said in, in chapter 3. You are cursed if you try to keep the law because nobody can keep the law. Nobody is perfect. Nobody is righteous. Nobody can do it. And therefore, if you try to be justified in your own works, you're going to fail, and your failure is going to result in you being cursed. It's an impossible thing. So if you want to abandon Christ, there is huge ramifications of that. And what you're doing is you're actually choosing what is impossible. But you have to remember the troublemakers. They weren't saying that you need to abandon Jesus altogether. What they were saying is you just need to add a little law-keeping into the mix. You need Christ but a little bit of something else too. Jesus and some of this other stuff. But remember what we said before, Christ is either all sufficient or not sufficient at all. If you have to add anything to Christ, it means that he's not sufficient. And if he's not sufficient, he's not sufficient at all. That's what's at stake. And so here's the consequences, verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who will be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. 
The consequence, if you decide to be circumcised, that is, come underneath the Old, old Covenant law, you are saying, in effect, that Christ is no advantage to you, that Christ is not sufficient, and the result or the conclusion is you fall away from grace. You are severed from Christ, cut off from Christ. If we ever base our acceptance by God on anything other than Jesus alone, then we are trying to be justified on our own efforts. And trying to be justified by our own efforts means we are severed. We're cut from Christ. No grace. So think about that. If you've ever said or you've heard people say, yes, you're saved by faith in Jesus, but you're also, you need to be baptized in order to be saved. That's a severing. If you've ever heard or said to yourself, oh, I'm accepted by faith, and also I need a demonstration of that through like signs and wonders and blessing and all this kind of stuff, you're severed. Oh, if I just go to church and read my Bible and pray and try to be a good person, God certainly won't reject me after all. I mean, he's good and loving, right? Severed. That's how serious Paul is in this moment. Does Paul really mean that you can fall away from grace? Oh, no, let me read this again. Uh, You have fallen away from grace if you do this. So does he? Yeah, I think he means it. Because it... Oh, yeah, yeah, it says that. So if you are severed from Christ, you, you fall away from grace. In other words, the reason why Paul is saying this is because you have one pole. Remember we talked about this last week? You have law and you have sin and you have death. And then the other pole is the opposite. You have grace and you have life and you have forgiveness. And if you have law, you can't have Christ. If you have Christ, you can't have law. If you're dead, you can't be alive. And if you're alive, you can't be dead. You see how that works? We have this phrase in the English language, it's called polar opposites. And never have I ever heard somebody use the phrase polar opposite to mean basically, oh yeah, they're kind of the same thing. That's just confusing. And so they are polar opposites. You are either in Christ or not. Not like I got one foot in in Christ. No, all or nothing. So does he mean um, that we could like lose our salvation? Well, I don't think so. And the reason why is because elsewhere in the Bible, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, the apostle John says this, referring to the Christians, they went out from us, that is the church, they went out from the church, but they were not of us. And look at the rationale. Because if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, so that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, people don't lose their salvation because Jesus bought salvation. And he bought it. He, bought, he like actually purchased something. He didn't like, you know, purchase salvation on layaway, like where it's stored somewhere. No, no, no. He bought it. He purchased it. He possesses it. And he didn't just buy salvation. He bought people. Remember that in Acts chapter 20? When Paul is preaching to the Ephesian elders and he said that the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of Christ's body, of the church, whom he purchased. And so John 10, remember, Jesus said, you are in my hand and you are in the Father's hand and nobody can pluck you out of my hand. 
And so those who abandon Christ or leave the church, what they're doing is just showing their true colors. They were never a part of it. That's why Jesus gave the parallel of the four soils. Remember that? The seed of the gospel was sown and it fell on a pathway, went away right, right away. Rocky soil, it kind of sprung up quickly and then it was gone because it didn't have deep roots. And then the weeds, which is the cares of the world, and it grew up and, and then all of a sudden it got you know, squeezed out. You know in the four soils, there's only one that actually produces life. That means you have a 25% success rate. No wonder why Jesus said broad is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the path to life. We need to take this stuff seriously. So does that mean we can't be sure if we're ever saved? No, of course you can be sure. How? First, you need to realize that your assurance of salvation never rests on your sincerity. Your assurance of salvation never rests on your enthusiasm. Your assurance of salvation should never rest on the intensity of your thought life or your emotional life. Oh, I just don't feel God. Oh, I want to feel. I guess I'm not saved. And the reason why I say that is this, your assurance of salvation is a person, and his name is Jesus. People often say, man, Phil, I just don't feel, I just don't know. And I say, here's the thing is, your salvation, you know, when I ask people this question oftentimes, I say, what saves you? Well, like, what is your salvation? How does that happen? And usually people are like, well, faith. And I go, <clears throat> and they're like, oh, Phil's a heretic, I knew it. And I will say, no, 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 no. Jesus saves you. Jesus saves you. Your faith is the instrument through which salvation that Jesus accomplished is applied to you. Faith does not save you. Jesus saves you. And therefore, Jesus is the object of our faith. And what saves us is not our faith, but what saves us is the object of our faith. So the question is, in what or whom are you trusting? And if the answer is Jesus, you're good to go. And it doesn't matter how big your faith is. I want big faith. It isn't like small faith, like, oh, the degree of your faith somehow is what saves you. No, mustard seed kind of faith, big move mountains kind of faith. It doesn't matter because Christ is the one that saves you. So when you wake up and you feel those doubts, I just don't know. You have to remember, unless I can undo Christ's life, death, and resurrection, I can't undo salvation. And therefore, I simply need to trust him, doubts and all. I believe 4% and I doubt 96. Good. 4% will get you, get you through. Just don't quit. Because there's these things in verse 7 and 12. You were running well, Paul said. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What Paul's going to do is he's going to show that these troublemakers, these troublemakers are doing a number on the church. And what we need to see is three things, church. We need to realize three things in verses 7 through 12. Number one is this. You need to realize that a gospel, which is Jesus plus anything, is not 
a help to you. It is a hindrance. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Both justification and sanctification are by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. Any other teaching outside of that that tells you you need Jesus, yes, but you also need, and they add anything, you have to realize that will not help you. That is going to hinder you. Especially if it's a false gospel of like prosperity or false gospel of like therapy. It sounds like it's going to help. Oh man, if I just did, 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 but it omits Christ. And that will help you for a moment, but then you will be choked out by the cares of the world. And then what will end up happening is you will be on your face crying out to God, I guess you don't love me after all. We have to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If our eyes ever come off Jesus, either to be saved or to grow in our salvation, if our eyes ever get off of him, we're going to be hindered because you become what you behold. So brothers and sisters, behold Christ, and therefore you become like him. Look to Jesus. So that's the first realization. Second realization in verses 8 and 9. And that is we need to realize that distorted gospels are not from God and they are not harmless. He says this persuasion, this kind of false gospel is not from him who calls you. This is not from God. I don't give a rip if it comes in Christian language. I don't give a rip if it comes from a so-called Christian church. We remember Satan himself used God's word to tempt and deceive. We know that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so there may be stuff that's wrapped in Christian jargon that may be void of Christ. And that kind of teaching does not come from God. It comes from Satan, the pit of hell. And we need to realize that because, verse 9, a little leaven or yeast leavens the whole lump. In other words, it's not just a harmless, oh, that's all right. I know, they, they're teaching false teaching, but, you know, just let them be. I mean, they got their own thing. No. If you let this be, a little bit of yeast will infiltrate the entire lump of dough. In other words, if we continue to allow people in our churches around the country, around the globe, to preach false gospels and don't ever say anything about it, not only are we being disobedient to 1 Timothy 1, but also we're allowing the church to become corrupted from the inside out. And so therefore, it's not a harmless, oh, shucks, turn a blind eye, it's all right. No. More sobering, verse 10. I have confidence in the Lord, Paul says, that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you, look at this, will bear the penalty, whoever he is. No wonder why James says, we who teach, be warned, for you're going to be judged more strictly. These troublemakers who are teaching this false gospel, it's not harmless. The third reality is this. You have to realize God will keep us accountable for every careless word we speak, especially if we are claiming to speak on behalf of him. And therefore, we have to make sure, brothers and sisters, that we are sobered up by the reality 
that judgment awaits those who teach this kind of nonsense. But I want to point out this. This is kind of funny. 11 and 12. Some people were accusing Paul of being wishy-washy. Sometimes Paul preaches grace. Sometimes he preaches circumcision. We don't know. He's inconsistent. So he says, well, hold up. But if I, but if I brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Like if I'm wishy-washy and sometimes I'm grace, sometimes I'm law, then why are you guys making a big deal of this? The reality is I preach grace. I preach Christ. That's why I'm persecuted. And then verse 12, I don't want to get into this too much. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. If you're going to do circumcision where you cut off a little bit, you might as well just go the whole way. <laughs> Why leave anything for chance? <laughs> Middle school, high school students, if you don't know what emasculate is, do not look it up on your phone. <laughs> so ask your parents and have a really great conversation. <laughs> So now Paul's going to transition in verse 5 and 6. He's going to go from that thought of warning people against bondage, and now he's going to transition into his next thought, which is about how we use our freedom. He says this, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. In other words, he's distinguishing a true Christian from a false teaching Christian, and that is this. We who are true Christians, who truly believe in the gospel, our ultimate hope is in Christ. Our ultimate hope is in his righteousness, declared and given to us, but is coming in fullness with the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. That is our hope. That is the distinguishing mark of a true Christian, is your hope is in Christ. Now, the opposite of that, remember the polar opposites is this, for many false Christians, if you actually listen to what's going on in their life and you ask the question of like, you know, what is the Lord doing in your life? How is the Lord teaching you? Whatever. Inevitably, at some point, they will reveal that their hope is not fully in Christ. Their hope is in somehow themselves in being better or achieving more or something like that. And so therefore, the hope is not righteousness coming to me. It's righteousness that I can manufacture. And I get this quite often. I'm at pastors' lunches and breakfasts, and I, and I sit with breakfasts. I don't know. Um, and, and we sit and we talk, and every once in a while, there'll be like an intern there and stuff, and I'll ask him, I'll say, hey, what's the Lord doing in your life? Like, give me some encouragement, man. I want to see the Lord at work in your life. And inevitably, they will always say, man, we got this great program at church. We got this great event that we just did. We did this kind of stuff. Man, it's awesome. And I said, no, no, no. The question was, what is the Lord doing in your life? Not what cool events have you done at your church. Do you, do you discern the difference? The difference is I'm doing good because I do stuff. Not I'm doing good because Christ is good for me. There's a discernment there. And I'll ask people, how are you doing with the Lord? Oh, I'm struggling. Why? Uh, my sprinkler's broke, yada, yada. And you start realizing, my hope is in me. My hope is in myself. My hope is in my serenity. The hope is in my peace. The hope is in my being comforted and me being having an easy life. That, that's my hope. That's not Christian hope. As Paul said, if you have hope in this life alone, we're most to be pitied. Hope that you can see is no hope, Romans 8. And so we hope for what we cannot see, that righteousness is coming our way. 
Christ is coming back. And then he gets to verse 6, what really matters. Look at this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. This whole long conversation about circumcision, he goes, hey, it doesn't matter. Like, seriously, guys, it doesn't matter. The only thing that counts is this. Your faith in Christ working through love. Another way to say it is this. The only thing that really, truly matters is you having faith in Jesus and that faith in Jesus being expressed or demonstrated through the manner in which you love. That's what matters. That's what's up. Now, how does this work? Because I don't know if you noticed, but the logic in the sentence is very significant. Let's read it again. What counts is, is only faith, faith working through love. Faith through love. So let me ask you, church, logically, put it together. What comes first, love or faith? You're so scared. <laughs> faith. Faith. Which means, do you want to love the way that God commands us to love our neighbor and him? Do you want to love the way that God commands us to love? That can only happen if you first have faith. You can do nice things for people, but it will not be counted as true love as we ought to love unless it flows out of faith in Christ first. Let me show you the logic of how this works. Let me, this bit of theology, I get it. Middle school, high school students, you may think that you can't learn theology. I say, baloney. I call the bluff. You can learn trigonometry. You can learn theology. You are made in the image of God. You can love God with your mind. So use your mind right now. Put your phone away and let's follow what God has to say and how he's revealed himself. Shall we? Here we go. Here's a little bit of theology for you. Oh, because Paul describes two kinds of circumcisions. One is a physical one, and another one is a spiritual one. Look at this. We start in Philippians 3.3. 3. We're going to go quickly so all the things are on here. In case you get paper cuts, turn the pages. Philippians 3.3. 3, for we, Paul says, are the circumcision. And he's going to describe who it is that is truly circumcised. It is those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So now he's just introduced this idea that a real circumcision is non-physical and involves spirit, worship, and glorification of God in Christ Jesus. All right, Colossians 2.11. In him, in Jesus, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And having been buried with him in baptism, that is the sign, baptism is the sign that you have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful work of God, who raised him from the dead. Romans 2, 28, 29. No one is a Jew, that is the people of God, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Galatians 3, remember verse 2. How is it that you receive the Holy Spirit? It's by hearing the gospel and believing it. Okay, when I take these four verses together and I put them together and I mash it up, here's what we come out with. 
When we hear the gospel, repent of our sins and believe it, God supplies us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit indwells us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit therefore performs a circumcision upon our hearts, and hearts is the deep us, the soul. And this circumcision is how we are given new hearts and how we are united to Christ in both his death and resurrection. And to be united to Christ means he bears our sins, we receive his righteousness, and therefore we are free from sin, free from the curse of the law, and free from the wrath of God. We are born again into new life. And the new life that we have been born into is a life of freedom. This free life is evidenced and expressed through love. Therefore, anyone who knows God and is born of God will love. Love, therefore, is the mark of genuine Christianity. Did you track with me, church? That's like the New Testament in a paragraph. If you will repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, there is a circumcision upon your heart that will be made. The Holy Spirit will do that and will cause you as Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 talks about, he will cause you to walk in newness of life. You will love God and love your neighbor as you ought to. And that's why I say gospel love flows from gospel freedom. In other words, you cannot love as you ought to unless you are first set free by Christ. But given this freedom, we've already read about the freedom, Christ has set us free, how should we live? If Christ purchased freedom for us, how should we live within that freedom? Should we be like the kid at camp and just spend all of our freedom on ourselves? Or is there some other way? Verse 13, Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. You were called to freedom. That is what God called you to. But then he's going to give us what not to use our freedom for and what we should use our freedom for. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, you cannot use your freedom to indulge in selfishness. You cannot use the freedom that Christ has purchased for you in order to spend all of your time and all of your thinking and all of your life on yourself. You can't go around pursuing your own selfish ambition and pride and all the rest. Jesus did not come and die for you and rise for you in order for you to go out and sin your brains out. Instead, he goes on to say, but by contrast, here's what you're supposed to use your freedom for. Through love, serve one another. Our freedom is meant to be used to lovingly serve others. Christ has set us free so that we could be profoundly others-oriented. What that means is we have been set free from the wrath of God. We've been set free from condemnation. We've been set free from self-indulgence. We've been set free from our selfishness, which is pride, which is the root sin of all sins. We've been set free from that in order that we may selflessly love and serve those around us. And therefore, I would say this, freedom in the gospel will always produce gospel love, which means if you've been truly set free, you will love. That is literally what God came to do. 
And that's why in the book of John, you'll see over and over where he says, 1 John, if you do not love, you do not know God. That's how he can say such things. Now here's the reality. Gospel freedom purchased by Christ. Gospel love. And why I use gospel love is this. Many of us think, oh, I have to love these people in order for me to be accepted by God. That's not gospel love. That's self-love. Gospel love is, look how much God loves me. I'm going to go and do likewise. Not to be accepted by God, but because I already am accepted by God. I am now free to love. I've had people ask me the question, okay, so what is God's will for my life? Middle school, high school students, you're going to be asking yourself this question, and hopefully your parents won't lie to you. Here's what God's will is for you. Be conformed to the image of Christ. And at rock bottom, God's will for you is this, to somehow, in some way, to lovingly serve others for his glory. It is not for you to be successful, except if you define sex as, success as loving others for the glory of God. That is at bottom what God wants for you. So what is the relationship between love and the law? What is, what is that relationship? Wait a minute, what do we do with the law then? You ever ask yourself the question, what's the purpose of the law? It's love. What? Let's go to the love chapter written by the Apostle Paul. You remember the love chapter written by Apostle, the Apostle Paul? You guys remember it? That's right, Romans 13. Gotcha. Here's what Paul says. Owe no one anything except to love each other. Why? Because the one who loves, verse 8, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery or murder or steal or covet, any other commandment are summed up in this word, summed up in this teaching. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you are fulfilling the law. But you can't love your neighbor as you ought to unless Christ sets you free. And you aren't set free except through repenting and believing the gospel. So the only way to fulfill the law is to believe in Christ. And in so doing, you are set free and you are enabled and empowered to actually love people. This is so important. The Apostle James, he actually refers to loving God and loving your neighbor as a law. <laughs> Look at this in James 1.25. But the one who looks in into the perfect law and he calls it the law of liberty. Laws aren't like free. Laws are binding. Not if it's the law of liberty. Not if you're set free in Christ to love your neighbor as yourself and God as you ought to. We have to act, brothers and sisters. Laws are always meant to be obeyed, not ignored. And loving God and loving our neighbor is the law of liberty. We don't have an option here. So what I want to do now is make sure you're hearing me clearly. I am not saying that loving others 
Like you better love others or else, you know, God's going to get you. What I'm saying is that Jesus Christ has lived the sinless and perfect life you couldn't. He substituted himself for you on the cross, paying for your sins, having the full wrath of God poured upon him as your substitute. He rose from the dead to prove that his life and death are sufficient, to grant you new life. He grants us new hearts through the Holy Spirit, circumcising our hearts. He dwells with us in the Holy Spirit, giving us gifts and all the others in order to help us love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. What I'm saying is this, we don't love other people in order for God to accept us. We love other people because in Christ, God accepts us. You have to get that straight. In the gospel, we learn how much God loves us, for God so loves us. He sent his son Jesus to rescue us. We know God loves us because Christ, while we are still sinners, he died for us. And now that we've been set free from the law and from its curse, the obligation upon us is we need to go love God and our neighbors. That's why when people ask Jesus, what is the great commandment of the law? He said, what? Love God and love your neighbor. All the commandments are fulfilled in that. And so in communion, here's what's happening. We are remembering God's love for us, that he died for us. More than that, that he rose for us. And we're remembering that Jesus died for us to forgive us of our sins so that we could be free. And that freedom reminds us that we are to go and love others. I love what Paul does in Galatians 6.2. Sometimes we hear this kind of talk and we're like, yeah, but how do you do that? Like, how do you actually do that? Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. We live in a culture today where we don't want to bear one another's burdens. But the reality is you can't help someone, you can't love them or serve them if they're in need without taking some of the burden upon yourself. Honestly, that's the reason why we don't love and serve people is because we don't want their burden to fall on us. we got our own issues. And therefore, we distance ourselves from people, from people who are hard to deal with because we're like, ah, dude, I don't want to deal with all that. You deal with it. i got my own thing. And when that mindset infiltrates our minds and hearts, we are disobeying 6-2, and therefore we are failing at the law of love. We live in a culture that does not want to serve and love other people. In fact, in our own nature, Tim Keller writes this, the only reason why we help people is if we know it will make us feel good about ourselves. We give charitably, primarily to make us feel good about ourselves and to boost our fragile self-esteem. But you have to realize to give and to serve and to love others in order to boost our self-esteem is selfishness. That is using your freedom for selfish gain or indulgence of the flesh. When we sense that our self-worth is fragile and that's why we serve others and so that way the people we serve will make much of us, we're entering into relationship where we're telling people, my self-worth and my sense of value is dependent upon you recognizing me and giving me accolades and applause. But the reality is, brothers and sisters, 
you will never be truly satisfied by the applause of men. You have been made that your heart will find its truest delight when you look upon God himself and you hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Sin operates on this principle, your life for mine. You sacrifice for me. You sacrifice for my interest. You sacrifice for my self-image. You sacrifice for my worth. You sacrifice your needs for mine. You sacrifice your time for me. My life is most important. And yet what we see and remind ourselves in communion is that Jesus Christ came into the world not saying your life for me, but instead saying my life for you. My life to serve you. My life poured out for you. My life in sacrifice for you. And so brothers and sisters, there's two ways to live. You can either live your life for mine You better make much of me. You better surrender everything from me, 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 me. Or you can live a life like Jesus, love and service towards others, the very thing he came to set us free to do. And instead you say, no, 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 my life for you. The very center of reality is this. And so brothers and sisters, my encouragement to you is simply this. If you have been set free, you are set free to live a life of loving sacrifice for your neighbor. And if you've been sitting in these pews for 10 years and you don't even know the people's names at the end of your pew, you have not obeyed the law of love. Brothers and sisters, let's take Christ seriously. Let's take the forgiveness seriously. Let us cherish the freedom. How? Let's give our life away. That's why communion is so powerful. Jesus did this for me. Yes. Now you go and do likewise. So, Father, I pray as we come to the communion table, you would remind us of our oneness in Christ. God, that you would remind us of your sacrifice, remind us of the glorious gospel and how you have come to set us free. And that in being free, that we can love our neighbors as you want us to. In Jesus' name, amen.